What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'll tell you, if we were not true to our mission, our employees would move out, would like walk out. And that's actually why we made the zero plastic by 2025 pledge is we wanted to make ultra clear to every one of our employees, everyone in the industry, our customers, what we stood for. And now, you know, if I got hit by a bus today, whoever came in and ran the company would still have to adhere by those values, right? They're a part of the company. I think that's really powerful. And so I'm a big believer that corporations are the best shot we've got at keeping this planet habitable for future generations. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Fighting for Every Customer. My guest today is the type of founder who's always seemed to know exactly what he wanted to do sustainability, starting at home with small choices like ditching plastic, was his vision. But for Stu Landisberg, the founder of Grove Collaborative, actually building his vision was not so straightforward. He started out with an ahead-of-its-time concept, a less-than-ideal name for his brand, and a 200-square-foot locker in a storage facility in South San Francisco. Investors didn't buy that his online marketplace for sustainable home products was a good, fast-growth bet. But Stu was so motivated to succeed that he kept on pitching. At times, the euphoria of starting up was replaced by fear that he couldn't keep the lights on for his employees and his customers. Stu and I spoke about that journey, including how Grove approached finding and retaining new customers. Now, that part, over time, went very well. Grove recently went public with help from a Richard Branson-backed SPAC. I spoke with Stu just after Grove rang the bell of the New York Stock Exchange in June. It's fun to be here immediately following our IPO. And I will say, in my experience, running a public company is almost exactly the same as running a private company. Only more people text you about it. (laughs) (laughs) And more, more disclosures, right? I mean, I guess you'll hit that next level soon. Yeah, I mean, the actual process is kind of incredible. The amount of complexity, the amount of checking and double checking that every number is accurate. And I will say, I give the SEC a lot of credit because it's it's actually quite a challenging thing to get public. And they actually, in our experience, do a reasonably good job protecting the public from, you know, companies getting out that say they sell chairs, but actually are just posting pictures of chairs on Twitter or whatever it is. Well, that's great. Um, before we talk more about that, I'd like to take you kind of back in time. Um, when looking back to your childhood, do you see any signs that Young Stu would make a great entrepreneur or a potential founder of a company? You know, Young Stu, and this is, I swear to God, this is true. At one point, I had a teacher ask me that question in like sixth grade. And I wrote in this paper uh, that I wanted to be the CEO of a company called Seventh Generation, which is actually very close to what Grove does today. And this is a category that's been 
close to my heart since I was really young. I've always cared about sustainability. And my parents were a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, my dad dropped out of college in protest of the Vietnam War. And my mom was you know, probably the first hundred Prius buyers when it first came out. And so we just, we always prioritized sustainability. And so this category, home and personal care, was a really visible hallmark of sustainability for me as a child. And so I, I kind of always imagined selling sustainable dish soap and toilet paper. I don't know. Weird dream. Wow, that is so crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess nobody told young Stu that it's it was a, even seventh generation, which, you know, from the outside looked like a real kind of signal of a rising tide, right? It looked like a growing company selling the right things, but inside it, it was very difficult to kind of maintain those margins and keep it growing. But your real career um, actually started off in a totally different way. I was just looking at your LinkedIn and I saw you started at Lehman Brothers at a very interesting time. <laughs> sure did. I don't think the stock price was ever higher than the day I started. So I like to say I took that place down personally. <laughs> yeah, I started at Lehman and I was fresh out of college. I wasn't making coffee, but I wasn't making decisions either. And it was it was amazing to see this incredible institution, this machine of commerce just sort of grind to a halt. And I learned really early by watching the business of Lehman stop that businesses aren't machines. They're just coordinated efforts of a, of a large group of, of intelligent people. And I think that insight, which I refer to in my head as sort of, there is no machine, is one that stuck with me so deeply throughout my career is that there is no machine that sort of makes the business go. It's just people showing up to work every day in an organized fashion trying to accomplish the same thing. Yeah, what a lesson about failure too um, and just kind of the fallibility of things. I think that's right. And I think also authority, right? Just because people say something is a certain way, that doesn't mean it's true. And I mean, this is really tragic, but at Lehman, you know, the leadership there really projected the sense of stability and I was young and impressionable and looked up to those people so much. But even many of the senior folks there who'd been with Lehman 20 years, you know, looked up to and trusted in the things that management said. And I think, you know, to the extent that I have a, a need to do my own work and a distrust, perhaps a healthy distrust of, or, you know, trust, but verify, whatever you want to call it, of information that's being given to me when it has an agenda you know, you really learn that lesson the hard way when I didn't have like savings or a big career or if it was easy for me when Lehman went down. But for many of the people who had, you know, 20 year careers there, it was a really hard moment. And I think left me with a, a little bit of a good question everything streak. What did your career look like after that point? So I was very fortunate, got a job at a wine industry startup backed by TPG Capital and was the first employee there and learned a lot there about wine, which was fun, but really about direct-to-consumer business because the best wine businesses are direct-to-consumer businesses. And the number one lesson that I learned in that business from the CEO was, I'll never forget him saying this, every consumer business starts with quality product. There is never a substitute. And I went on to spend the next several years in and around TPG it's an investing firm. And so their product is, you know, it's not a thing, but I really came away with a deep sense of the fact that the companies that win are the ones that had leadership teams 
that understood that the most important thing is can you build a distinctive and quality product that your customer loves? What was the like very first, uh, aside from your sixth grade paper, on um, the very first <laughs> sort of seedling or genesis of Grove? So the very, very first idea for Grove, and this is one that I don't usually talk about, but it's kind of fun. So I've always cared about sustainability. And in college, I remember being plagued by the proliferation of plastic cups. And you can probably imagine the ones I'm thinking about. And there is a plant-based compostable alternative. It just wasn't convenient. And so the idea, and I went to a you know, fairly liberal college in the Northeast where people cared a lot about sustainability. I would have expected people to make the more sustainable choice, but people just weren't doing it. So the first idea was really about how do I help college students make more sustainable choices? So wait, you just, you wanted to fix the beer pong situation? <laughs> I totally did, a hundred percent, right? I was like, this is fun, but also I feel really guilty and we're, the cups are never getting recycled and this is insane. It is an equally good party if it has compostable cups. Why are we not making this obvious improvement? deep in <laughs> and tell me um what was e-pantry how did how did you start that oh you've done your homework and are asking me about the most embarrassing things so when i started this company i did not really understand branding right i understood that it started with a good product i understood how a pnl should work i understood from my guilt-ridden beer pong days that it was important to bring make sustainability convenient but I started the company under a terrible and embarrassing name, ePantry. And every time I say it, I am so embarrassed. And I cannot believe, I should say, I'm so grateful to the team that came and worked with me at that company at that time. Man. But it was a really interesting company story. We launched as ePantry. It took us about a year to launch the website, which is longer than most startups take to launch their website. And it took us about four years to get any sort of real traction. And it's interesting, you know, my experience of the startup life cycle was you start with this sort of like sense of euphoria. I can do it. It's going to be awesome. I was good at whatever I did before. I'm going to go change the world. And then it turns out changing the world is hard. It's just a lot of things that have to go right. And the world is a pretty competitive place. So probably someone else has tried a version of your idea. And Anyway, the first four years were incredibly challenging. We couldn't really raise institutional capital. The business really didn't grow. And it was a struggle to keep the lights on. Were you trying to sell direct to consumers? And what were your products? So we sold 100% third-party product, like Mrs. Meyers, Method, 7th Generation, Burt's Bees, stuff like that. We sold 100% third-party products. We only probably had a 200 products. You know, we had one, I'll call it a warehouse, but what it really was was Started out as, you know, maybe like 200 square feet in a self-storage unit. And eventually we moved into like 15,000 square feet in a self-storage unit in South San Francisco. And... Well, that also sounds depressing. <laughs> it was incredibly depressing. There were no windows. It's just like a mesh crate in the middle of this building. I mean, those self-storage places are not made for people to be in all day. But we would like bring the team down there and pack boxes. I mean, it was... We didn't have money, right? But we had to make progress. And that period, this sort of e-pantry period, we didn't really understand. I didn't really understand what we would end up being when we grew up. And so there were two things that were happening. One is we were iterating and testing and learning. And 
I probably gave away, this is not an exaggeration, $10,000 worth of gift cards in Starbucks, just asking random people to click through the website or a prototype or whatever to understand what version of the idea people would like. And that actually helped. That helped a lot. So you were doing your research while you were growing. Is this the period where you were looking for your first investors as well? We raised money anytime we could. I mean, if like I took some $2,000 checks, right? Which is a very, very small for an angel investment. And we didn't really get our first big break until 2016 on the investor side. So we raised from angels, from individuals, from people I'd worked with, from friends, friends of friends. I mean, anybody you can, we could talk to. And we finally raised our series A in 2016. We ended up pitching 173 investors and we got 173 notes. And it was an incredibly, I'll call it daunting process. It did not seem like a good idea. It's strange because, you know, looking back to 2012 or 2016, where you were, it's easy to say this was early for consumers changing their, you know, household buying habits to ditching plastic, going to glass for and, and sustainable cleaning supplies and looking at greener options. But it really wasn't. There were other companies doing this at the same time. And was were consumers just not seeing the light or was it the venture capitalists not seeing the light yet? I don't think we were ready if I'm honest. Consumers were sort of ready, right? It wasn't where it is today. I think, unfortunately, the climate and plastic and environmental emergencies of our time, they get more urgent every day. And so over the last decade, I think we've seen the effects of climate change and the proliferation of plastic waste in a way that's beyond the worst case scenario that we could have imagined 10 years ago. So I I think people are more aware today. But also, you know, the idea when we first started wasn't that good. The business model wasn't that good. And hundreds and hundreds of investors have said no over the years. And most of them were right because the business wasn't that good. And if they had said yes in 2014, as much as I had wanted them to, we would have focused on scaling a bad business model. I mean, it was a couple of pieces of good advice and some real kind of stick to listening to our consumers that allowed us to trial and error our way into a business model that that's allowed us to really sort of grow and put a statement in the category around building the next generation of home and personal care. But predicting this then, yeah. What really happened? How did you make the changes and what were they? Where did the advice come from? We started out selling 100% third-party product. I was lucky to have built good relationships with the founders of companies like Method and Seventh Generation and Turns out those companies are not as big as I wish they were. Uh, And so I could meet their founders. They were accessible to me, which I appreciated so much. And, you know, I should give Adam and Eric at Method and Jeffrey and John and Joey at Seventh Generation a huge shout out without their support. No Grove. And even the folks at Mrs. Myers, which is owned by S.E. Johnson and was at the time, were, were wildly supportive. But I couldn't get any of them to make a product I really wanted, which was a concentrated cleaner because that's obviously much smaller to ship. And I was really pushing them, hey, can we get smaller format product? And we were tiny. But I I really said, hey, you know, this is better for the environment. It's lighter weight, easier to ship. Why isn't this fait accompli? And the reality is that if you go to market on shelf first, the shelf presence of a one ounce concentrate 
you know, a lot of our products are reusable chassis and sort of a one ounce cleaning concentrate, for example. They're great quality, but they're not very big. And that didn't work on shelf where their businesses were. So we just started creating our own product. Yeah. And on the flip side, it does work very well if you're shipping stuff because it's tiny and it's easy and it's not weighty. Exactly. And so we started doing that and it was working. Yeah. And it gave me the opportunity to pick a new brand name because at that point I had already realized that ePantry was one of the biggest mistakes of my entire life. Not doing it, but calling it that. Um, <laughs> anytime someone was like, what do you do? I would just try to get around saying the name of the company. And then in 2017, I think, early 2017, we were pitching an investor. Uh, his name is Rishi Garg. He ended up investing and being a really incredible friend to the company. And he said in this interview, Stu, I think what your or interview, you can see how I think about pitch meetings or thought about them back then. Uh, <laughs> Stu, what I think you're actually trying to build is the P&G of the future. And it was a really simple insight that was massively productive in understanding where we could be differentiated, right? We'll struggle to beat Amazon on convenience and a number of sort of like the mechanical factors of e-commerce, but we can innovate and win in sustainability and we can build a different version of what it means to be a consumer products company, one that's truly omni-channel, truly cares about the impact that our category has on the planet, and is willing to try crazy stuff if we think it can move the category forward. And that's that's really the change. That was probably the first comment that catalyzed the big change in direction. Yeah, that must have been really motivating for you to even hear that that was remotely a possibility that you should aspire to. Well, he said it and I said, no, 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 that's not what it is. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he's like, no, dude, just take a second and think about that. Because that's a really compelling thing if you think you can build that. And gosh, this guy was, I mean, I was young and stupid and he was more experienced. Uh, and he was really compassionate with me in that conversation. Um, and it paid dividends going forward. Yeah, that's fantastic. So what was it like to build up your own product lines then? How soon did you start hiring and and building your supply chains? Gosh, that makes it seem like we were such an organized company. So the first own brands product, and I hope that this doesn't get me in any trouble to say, but we was a kitchen towel and we looked online for someplace that was liquidating kitchen towels. <laughs> and we bought like 400 kitchen towels for a dollar. I still have some in my kitchen. And everyone in the company, while we were in an all hands or on a conference call, would go through and rip the brand tags out of the kitchen towels. And then we would wrap them in craft paper that was stamped with at that time, the brand was called ePantry & Co. Uh, with the ePantry & Co. logo and taped together. And that was our first product. And Wow, so high quality. <laughs> yeah. I was actually, I mean, they've held up pretty well, I have to say. A long way from there to sourcing organic cotton and thinking all about that stuff. Now, there's a saying, you overestimate what you can do in a month and you underestimate what you can do in a year. And you really underestimate what you can do in a decade. And that's how I think about our product development capabilities. I mean, we started with nothing, literally repackaging stuff we bought off the internet. And then we hired someone who had no background in product development to sort of like run product development for us. And she would go to trade shows and find cool stuff that was sustainable and it worked okay. And now we have like an incredible 
global supply chain that is deep in terms of sustainability, deep in terms of best practices from a treatment of employees across the globe, best practices from an offset standpoint. I mean, really incredible. And there wasn't like a moment where it went from being ultra crappy to best in class. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> it just, you know, every day it was a little different than the day before. So after pivoting to Grove, get, taking the good name and starting to build your own products, um, what what was sort of the biggest challenge in getting that that to kind of become a known brand? So we switched from ePantry to Grove in 2016, I remember, March 8th, 2016. Oh, joyous day in my own life. And we still had a ton of work to do. And we were really lucky from a, you know, really the question I think is about how do you build awareness, if you think about it that way, but how, and how do you make clear what you're standing for? We were lucky in two ways. Number one, our company has always been ultra clear what we stand for, ultra clear. It is not about anything other than how do we change our industry to be a positive force for human and environmental health. Everyone in the company wakes up thinking about that every day. And so what does our brand stand for? I don't even have to say it, right? Everybody comes in and they know it. And that's incredibly powerful in building a brand, right? How do we want our Grove guides who do all our customer service to interact with our customers? Well, they know that the goal here is not to sort of get every nickel from every customer. It's to change the category. And if someone has a bad experience with one of our products, great, we'll send them a different scent, right? Because the goal is to change the category. And so that type of clarifying underlying mission was super valuable, number one. And number two, it attracted then and attracts now influential people. So we were one of the very early companies to leverage a real community of influencers. But it started for us because people wanted to tell their friends that they were making sustainable decisions. And that gave us access to really amazing influencers very early on. And it continues now, you know, we went public in partnership with Richard Branson. We have this amazing partnership with Drew Barrymore. We've over time had great partnerships with, you know, everyone from Lauren Conrad to Jeremiah Brent and Jonathan Van Ness and a number of awesome, awesome individuals. And I think it's all because the best people want to be involved in projects that have real impact. When we come back, I'll talk with Stu about his company's pledge to go plastic-free. And the one thing he says would make his employees walk out on him. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So you were kind of growing with the rise of social media, with the rise of influencers, and you were able to use that. There's a lot of talk about sort of, you know, companies trying to change behaviors, also having to do a lot of education of their consumers, right? It's like part of this mission, like, oh, well, our challenge was also to educate consumers, which is just a like friendlier way of saying marketing, right? I guess, how do you wrap your head around that? And how did you approach the challenge of growing your brand while changing behavior? 
It's an interesting question. And it, I don't know exactly where the line between education and marketing is exactly. And I'm not sure if it's, a, you know, it's sort of like marketing is a bad thing, right? Which I don't know. I don't think marketing is a bad thing if it's for, if you believe in the product. But it is definitely true that because our product is so different, and just if your if your listeners don't know, you know, Grove has a very strong commitment to be plastic free. So the goal to be zero plastic in 2025. Already today, have you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of sales in zero plastic and no single use plastic product. And so that's required reimagining categories. Our dish soap comes in an aluminum bottle with a refillable glass vessel. Our best selling laundry product is zero waste laundry sheets. Think of it like a dryer sheet you put in your washing machine, it dissolves. Our shampoo is a bar under the brand Peach, not plastic. Anyway, stuff like that. So it's really different formats than consumers are used to. And for us, it's been about trial, right? How do you get someone to believe that a bar shampoo works better than the bottle? Well, let them try it. It turns out that shampoo is 90% water. And if you give them a bar, they'll realize that all of the efficacy is in the actives, which are much more concentrated in the bar than in the shampoo in your bottle. So you actually get a better product experience. And we've found historically, and if you go to Grove's app or site today, you'll get a big gift basket because trial is the thing that drives behavior change in our experience. Yeah, that's so interesting um, because they, the products are, are new. Um, Something else I noticed is that your customer service seems to have like kind of a personal touch to it. When I've ordered boxes in the past, there'll be like a handwritten note, even just scribbled on the box, you know, like, thank you or or have a good day or something simple. But it doesn't look like it's stamped on by a machine. It looks like it's written by a real human and it's kind of a cool touch. It's 100% not stamped on by a machine. And I'll tell you where that comes from is in the early days. And this is one of the really nice things about having a company that was very unsuccessful for half of its life <laughs> is in those early days, I mean, every customer we fought for, every customer, like the first three or 400 customers are all, all their names are written on a chalkboard that's still in the office. And it probably took us two years to get those 400 customers. You know, we've probably acquired a hundred in the hour we've been talking. Yeah. But the mentality of every customer is a person. And if every customer is a person, we can talk to them. And if they have a problem, we can solve it. And in the early days, we would write. We knew a lot of those people. So we would write, like, have a great summer. Like, hope your kids are well, whatever. We'd write personal notes. We used to send a schedule, like, in every box. And we'd write a note on every single one. We never wanted to lose the fact that it's a person sending something to another person. Because I do feel like, I don't know, the soup tastes better when it's made with love. And I just believe that. And that's the kind of company we want to be. Did you briefly have like a subscription type of model? And what happened to that? So we still do have the majority of our consumers on, uh, it's basically a flexible auto ship model where you can choose to either ship it like right then, or you can choose to wait for it to come on a scheduled date. About a little over half of our orders are placed ad hoc, mostly through the mobile app today. Um, a little less than half are auto shipments, but it's a pretty good balance between the two. And being in a consumables category, sometimes it's nice to just not run out of toilet paper. So I think consumers use it both ways, and that's cool. Tell me about the company today. Um, this I love your pledge to be plastic-free. How did that come about? Is it a truly reasonable goal? And I want to talk about kind of corporate sustainability, and especially in this year, in this time when... 
things are going on with the EPA and uh, and regulating companies. It's there is a responsibility for companies to take their own sustainability into their own hands now. And how can people do that? I know this is kind of a big topic I'm launching into, but first tell me about your own mission and then let's talk about what what others can do. Sure. But I think it's valuable to start with the worldview that I have on the obligation of companies and the opportunity for companies to drive change because it does inform our strategy And I think, you know, we're recording this on June 30th. Today, the Supreme Court ruled that the EPA has to take a significantly lighter hand in protecting our planet, which is one of several I would describe. I will avoid the adjective, but I think questionable at best decisions in recent times. But I do think that that whatever happens in the political spectrum consumers have the opportunity to drive change with each of their purchases. And businesses have the opportunity to embrace change or to push against it. And I believe the best people, the best employees, the best teams will only work, will demand to work at companies that are on the right side of history. Like if you are a smart person and you want to go work at an oil company today, I cannot fathom that unless you're like taking them down from the inside, right? (laughs) And for your listeners who work at big polluters, I hope you're raising your hands to your employers and saying you're on the wrong side of history. And so I think what will happen over the next 20 years is that the best talent in the marketplace will go to the companies solving the industry's most, not, not the industry, our species' most important problems. And so we are on the right side of that. And I think that every thoughtful, forward-thinking business leader who's not about next quarter's profits, but how do I win over the next decade is going to have to get on the right side of this issue. And I think that is a force that will be more powerful than anything in politics, because as much as this political body can say, hey, we can't prevent you from polluting, your employees can prevent you from polluting. I'll tell you, if we were not true to our mission, our employees would like walk out. And that's actually why we made the zero plastic by 2025 pledge is we wanted to make ultra clear to every one of our employees, everyone in the industry, our customers, what we stood for. And now, you know, if I got hit by a bus today, whoever came in and ran the company would still have to adhere by those values, right? They're a part of the company. And I think that's really powerful. And so I'm a big believer that corporations are the best shot we've got at keeping this planet habitable for future generations. Let's talk about one area in specific you brought up, which is listening to your employees, uh, having an open ear to their concerns, their desires, where they want to work, what kind of business they want to work at. How do you, I mean, I imagine you have several hundred employees now. Um, What's the current number? Uh, shade over a thousand. Yeah, there you go. So how, how do you listen? How do you keep an open ear um, when, you're, when your company is growing so large? Um, and can you recall a specific piece of feedback you've gotten or suggestion you've gotten that you've taken and run with? I still feel like I'm going into work and there's 10 people in the office, right? It's not significantly more stressful. It's not significantly less stressful, right? I'm doing my best now like I was doing my best then. And there's still people who depend on the company, for their livelihoods. And I take that as seriously now as I did then. And I think that keeps a culture of approachability. And you know, I can't have one-on-one conversations with all thousand people, but I can make sure the people who really want to be heard are heard. 
And I can make sure that our leadership understands it's really important to listen to their people as well. And this isn't just when it comes to how do we take sustainability more seriously. It's also about, you know, how do we respond to the most important issues of the day, right? How do we respond to racial inequity? How do we stand by our LGBTQ plus community? How do we really operate as a mini sort of like organization inside of this society? And okay, X person sent me an idea. It was a fantastic idea for how we should email our customers. And it was like, you know, oh, oh, those types of ideas come in too. And so I think what's most important is just making sure that every person understands that at Grove, he or she or they is deeply valued. Mm -hmm. And if you don't say what you mean and you like stay quiet and think your opinion doesn't matter, you're doing the company a disservice. Like it is your job to speak up. And so people do. Yeah. Is it all just sort of in the air, in the culture, the ability to speak up, or have you put in any formal... Oh, like mechanisms that are usable? Yeah, 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 exactly. Totally. I would say the first thing that I really recommend, and I wish I'd started doing this earlier, was I send all company emails, and I ask people to respond. And people respond, right? And people feel 100% comfortable responding to my emails, which is great. And there's like a reasonable filter of like, hey, if this is unimportant, I'm probably not going to reply. But... I can basically tell in that. And so that's one thing that I think is valuable. The second thing that's valuable is I'm very present in all hands and I love taking, we use Zoom for all hands, probably like a lot of folks because we're fairly distributed now. And people like put stuff in the chat and we do it all the time proactively. And it's totally okay to ask anything in the chat. And the last thing we do is we do crowdsource anonymous Q&A, which I will admit is a double-edged sword because sometimes we get questions that are no win questions, right? That are either not appropriate or, you know, just sort of like we can't answer because we don't have a good answer and that doesn't feel good to anyone. But, you know, 99% of the time, it's people asking what's actually on their minds, which is fantastic, right? People are asking, okay, after the DSPAC, how much cash do we have? People also ask, how do we get access to like the Virgin discount codes? I was like, all right. <laughs> I mean, tell me about the decision to go public via SPAC um, and to team up with Virgin on that. Um, I know it's a pretty costly way to to handle the process. Not that any IPO is not costly, but um, how did that decision come about, and um, and how has it how has it worked out? So it's worked out well. You know, I think the overall market's obviously in a really different place than we expected, but our partnership with Virgin is incredibly strong. And I feel really good about the plan that we have going forward, which we put together in partnership with them, which I think will set the company up super well. But, you know, without getting into sort of like our projections and why I'm excited about them, we had the opportunity to go public, you know, basically any way we wanted. We could have done an IPO. We could have gone via SPAC. Um, and we chose to go the SPAC route because I really believe the expression, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. The second word in our company name is collaborative. Like, I believe in that stuff 100%. And I also believe, to your point, the barrier to people changing their habits for the better is just awareness. And so the opportunity to partner with someone like Richard is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, I trade a text with him or an email with him once a week. I mean, he's deeply involved in the company. I get an email from him like last week and I saw the next day he was with Zelensky in Ukraine. I was like, the hell are you doing replying to my email, man? <laughs> um, but it's amazing having that level of partnership. And if I view our goal as being the de facto winner, 
in a disruptive space, having that partnership is invaluable. And if you look at the biggest disruptors in the last decade, a disproportionate share of the economic value and the sort of rules for the category go to the winner. Tesla did this in EVs, right? They came out and they won. And then they sort of set the rules. You can see that like in plant-based meat, right? Beyond and impossible sort of came out first and they set the rules around what plant-based meat and alternative proteins would be there. And I think we have that opportunity in zero plastic to be the de facto market leader so that when the buyer at, you know, pick your favorite supermarket, their CEO says to them, you know, you need to go and figure out how to lower our plastic waste. That person is going to say, all right, well, the obvious first call is growth. Yeah. And I want to be that obvious first call. Great. What other goals do you have for to achieve before 2025, aside from the zero plastic? Where do you think the company will be? I would put my goals into three buckets by 2025. I think the first is obviously sustainability. The second is in sort of product innovation and awareness. And the third is corporate. I think from a sustainability perspective, we want to figure out the really hard problems of zero plastic, right? If you think about a reusable spray bottle, we're still using, it's not single-use plastic, but we're still using plastic for the trigger. So we've got to be able to find a recyclable componentry there because even if our total life cycle assessment is much better, we can get it to zero. We want to do that. And if we do that, we will lead the industry and we'll share it with the industry. So that's our biggest sustainability goal. From a innovation and impact perspective, we've historically gone to market just through the direct-to-consumer channel. And in our categories, only about 3 to 5% of consumers shop you know, direct from brands like us. So 95% of consumers don't have access to our products. So we want to build products that win and continue to win in retail. We launched in Target last year. That's been extraordinarily successful. We launched with, you know, 20-something SKUs. We've more than doubled that year over year. So that's been a great partnership, but we still have a long way to go in building the innovation and reaching the consumers. And so in 2025, you know, I want Grove to be everywhere that pick your favorite conventional brand is. And there's a plastic-free option everywhere you shop for home and personal care. And on the corporate side, I want the business to be sustainable financially. We've got a great path to profitability, which was not always the case if I am intellectually honest, right? We've got a great path to profitability over the next few years. And you know that has not historically been my focus, if I'm honest about it, right? We grew from like 6 million to 385 million in like four years. That's fast. And now to 1.5 billion? That was sales, not valuation. Uh, the 1.5 billion was our, our valuation when we went public. Got it. But- Either way, right? The goal now is how do we get to a place where we can grow profitably over the long term? Because if we can be profitable, we are beholden to no one. We can innovate and push our sustainability agenda in the way that we think will deliver value to shareholders over the long term, but also deliver value to the environment and to our communities and to our customers. And there's, it's just, it's an amazing thing to be free to operate with perfect alignment to the vision. Great. Thank you so much, Sue, for being with me today. Christine, I loved it. Thank you so much. After speaking with Stu, what stuck with me is that he began his career from a place of disillusionment. 
leadership at Lehman Brothers, where he started out, was saying one thing. While the whole establishment was collapsing, that gave Stu a healthy distrust of information delivered with an agenda. And on the very contrary, he himself became a leader who speaks truth with humility. I loved how he wasn't embarrassed to admit that he drew some inspiration from cheap red plastic cups at his liberal arts college. And his mission, Grove Collaborative's mission, to eliminate plastic from their company's use and their product's packaging in less than three years is, of course, admirable. On that topic, he again is speaking truth, truly informing customers that the vast, vast majority of plastic they use is not recycled, and that plastic recycling in America has always been, for the most part, a myth. Whether he can truly change the behavior of consumers as his company moves into a new era post-IPO is his next challenge. He fought for customers early on, and as the company grew. Now, he'll have to get customers to fight for his mission and the planet. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you can spare just a minute, please do leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. Do you agree with Stu that corporations are the key to slowing climate change? You can let me know on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who, weirdly enough, also loves to buy 400 kitchen towels for $1, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, and our editor is Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Ligorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. Thank you.